You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Welcome, everybody, to U.S. Institute of Peace's event, Pakistan's Post-Pandemic Economic Outlook. My name is Thamana Salakadeen. I'm director of our South Asia uh, programs at USIP, and it's a pleasure for, all, for you all to join us here virtually. Uh, the United States Institute of Peace is a national, nonpartisan, independent institute founded by Congress and dedicated to the proposition that a world without violent conflict is possible, practical, and essential for U.S. and global security. We're very excited that you all can join us today for this event, looking at Pakistan's um, economic outlook. The COVID-19 pandemic, as you all know, has been a blow to many economies around the world. And in particular, it is a very difficult time for Pakistan, which had already slowed down in terms of economic growth considerably after experiencing a twin deficit crisis in 2018. It's an, also an interesting time because with the new Biden administration coming in in the United States, Pakistan is also seeking to redefine its bilateral relationship with the United States on geoeconomic terms, trying to shift away from uh, what is largely geostrategic terms over the last several decades. So we have an exciting panel today uh, who will be discussing what's going on in Pakistan in terms of the economic outlook, how they're trying to uh, restart the economy, change things around, work with the IMF, and rebuild relationships with the United States. Um, so on our panel, we have uh, Khurram Hussain is going to kick off. He is the most, probably the most knowledgeable and, uh, you know, famous economic journalist in Pakistan today. He works for the prominent newspaper Dawn. He's written for a host of publications. We're very happy to have him and his insights here today. Uh, we look forward to hearing from him. We also have Safiya Ghori Ahmed, who's currently director uh, for the South Asia practice of the at McClarty and Associates. Um, and she has spent uh, a lot of time in business development in South Asia, Southeast Asia, East Asia, but previously served both on Senate Foreign Relations Committee and in the State Department working on Pakistan and uh, other countries in the region. And we also are joined by Naila Nakvi, the founder and CEO of Pie in the Sky. Uh, it's a renowned cafe in Karachi. If any of you are in Karachi, you should definitely check it out. She founded it in 2001 and after several years of working in the hotel management industry. And today, Pie in the Sky has 20 branches across Karachi and Hyderabad and employs over 200 people. Um, and from Naila, we're really excited to actually hear the on-the-ground small business story um, in terms of Pakistan's economic growth. I'm also very happy to welcome today Uzair Yunus as our moderator. He has recently joined USIP as a visiting senior policy analyst. Uzair is a, 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 we're very happy to have him join our team and he himself is very knowledgeable on the Pakistani economy. And so without further ado, I'd like to turn it over to Uzair to moderate this interesting discussion on what we see going forward in Pakistan. Thanks so much. Thank you for that introduction, Tamanna. And I think we should just jump right in. Um, I'll start with Khurram and then go to Naila and then Safia for an international perspective on what's going on and what the outlook is. But Khurram, starting with you, uh, we really had an action-packed seven 
to 10 days in Pakistan. The IMF program is resuming. Uh, we had a change of guard at the finance ministry. Um, then uh, a signal that Pakistan was going to resume trade ties with India, and then a signal that it was not going to uh, move forward on that. And then the upcoming budget issues related to taxation and tax to GDP targets. But also on the flip side, you have the government saying that the economy is coming back strongly and that indicators like cement production, seed production, et cetera, are on their way up. So how do you see uh, things developing in Pakistan and what's your take on overall macro outlook for Pakistan and its economy? Okay, thanks for that, Uzair, uh, and thank you also for a very generous introduction that I received over here. Uh, let me just start off by saying I'm especially pleased to be on a panel with Naina Lakhvi because uh, pie in the skies, uh, brown bread and croissants have been a fixture in my house for many, many years now. Uh, so uh, thanks for that, Naina. And uh, regarding the economic uh, uh, cr crossroads that Pakistan is currently standing on, sir, all the items that you mentioned are linked, as you well know. And uh, at the moment, as you said, Pakistan is, uh, the past seven days have been action-packed over here because it seems as if we are at a pivotal moment, uh, but there is a spoiler at play during that pivotal moment. Um, if you just look at the sequence of events over the past, let's say, one week or 10 days, basically from about March 24th, 23rd till uh, today, uh, Pakistan won, uh, Pakistan's IMF program won board approval on March 25th. Uh, on the back of the commitments that were made on uh, in this uh, uh, IMF uh, program, Pakistan approached the private capital markets and floated a euro bond on uh, March 30th, I think it was. And uh, uh, one day before the bond flotation, the finance minister who had signed the, the document was in fact fired. Uh, and the, the, the finance minister who had done the roadshows for the Eurobond were fired. Now, on the day of the Eurobond, the first tranche of the IMF agreement uh, arrived, $500 million. So $3 billion were lifted from the creditors uh, after the, sign, after the uh, board agreement, agreement at the board for the IMF program. And uh, right after that, uh, or at the, pretty much the same time, the person, the key person who had made those commitments was fired and replaced by somebody else, Hamadah Zar, who in his maiden press conference uh, actually said that these commitments that have been made to the IRS can be reviewed and uh, went on to say that the government's economic uh, direction going forward is going to be pro-poor, uh, not necessarily deficit fighting, which is what the IRS program aims at. Um, which tends to hurt the poor rather than uh, the poor. And uh, then even went on to say, to dilute the commitments that the government might put behind the critical state bank amendment bill by saying, well, we've introduced it to parliament. Uh, we have met our commitment to the IMF because the commitment only extended to uh, introducing that bill. From here onwards, we will let parliament have its way. Uh, which means that, uh, it, uh, at least I read those words to mean that they're not going to put a particularly strong push behind that bill, and it could stand to be watered down significantly as it moves through power. So what's going on? The way I see this is that uh, uh, the government is now getting cold feet about implementing the very stiff conditions that have been agreed to in the IMF, uh, uh, with the IMF uh, in the latest program. And... Uh, uh, has decided very, very abruptly to switch horses in the middle of the street right after the commitments are made. 
and a new uh, finance minister starts pointing in an altogether different direction from the one pointed to in the fund. Number one. Number two, shortly after the finance minister, shortly after Hamadaza said this, suddenly word began to circulate from very strong quarters that uh, Hamadaza himself may be replaced by Shokat Ali, uh, somebody who's not known for implementing pro-poor policies. In fact, the last time he was brought in as finance advisor with ministerial power, back in, I think, 2009 it was, uh, incidentally, back then, he had also replaced Hafiz Sheikh. Uh, no, sorry, Hafiz Sheikh had replaced him uh, right after. But uh, that was also when uh, Pakistan was about to implement a very, very stiff IMS program. And uh, Shokat Adin basically saw the implementation of that program. So it seems as if some kind of a tussle is taking place within the government of Pakistan about the future economic direction the country must follow. And it would be very interesting to uh, drill a little bit deeper into this tussle to find out what, who are the competing factions and what is the advice that they are tendering. But at the moment, it appears that at the highest levels in the government of Pakistan, there are uh, there are uh, uh, more than there, there are at least two opinions about which direction to take. One of them leads towards the elections um, that uh, are now in view for many of the MNAs of the PTI. And the other direction leads towards uh, resumption of the fund program and seeing it through to completion along with relevant structural reform. Uh, the two of these cannot go hand in hand for very long. Uh, they can, to a certain extent, be, uh, be, be dovetailed together, but a point will come that they will necessarily diverge. Um, so we can discuss that later as well, if you wish. Uh, but that crossroads is where we stand right now, and uh, how this whole tussle dissolves itself is what we will be looking for in, uh, in the days to come. So very quickly, let me just take one minute to tell you what I will be looking for in the days to come. I have three things on my mind. Uh, number one, I'm waiting to see when the IMF uploads the Memorandum on Economic and Financial Policy, the document that contains the details on the commitments that Pakistan has given to the IMF. That document will tell us uh, about the fiscal deficit target that has been set, the revenue measures and the revenue uh, incremental revenue effort that needs to be mounted, the next international reserve targets that have been set, the public debt reduction path that has been committed to, and all that. It will give us an idea of how steep these commitments really are and how far the, the commitments from the structural reforms go. And power tariffs, the automaticity of power tariffs uh, envisioned in the amendment to the NEPRA Act, as well as the state bank amendment bill. How far is the government committed to seeing these through, or to what extent is it uh, the government's commitment to only introduce these in parliament uh, and then let the will of the parliament decide uh, what, what to do? That document will tell us. So then you might notice it's been March 24th, I think, since board approval happened. In normal times, uh, the document is uploaded within days after the board approval. It has been well over 10 days now, and we have not yet seen the document. So I'm curious as to the delay. Uh, as the IMF also sitting back and waiting to see how things resolve themselves here at home in Pakistan before uploading those commitments and making them public. Uh, last I asked them directly, their answer was no, it's just that COVID and the spring meetings have delayed things a little bit, but uh, we'll get them up as soon as possible. But I've never, I, I can't remember the last time I saw a 10 day long delay in, um, in making those documents public after board approval after the release of the crash. Uh, number two, I'll be looking to see who is really going to be the finance minister, who will be in the driving seat. Will it be Hamad Azhar or will it be Shokat Karim um, instead? Uh, and the third thing then, obviously, is once the dust has settled on that uh, front and we know who is in the driving seat going forward, who's the captain of the ship, 
uh, going forward is to ask them how strongly do they stand behind the commitments that have been given to the IMF or to what extent do they envision a change of course. Uh, once all three of these things have been addressed, then we will have a clearer picture of uh, what direction Pakistan's economic uh, outlook is uh, heading to. Jose? Thank you for that, Khurram, um, and, and for that overall macro view. I have some questions on all these three things that you mentioned, and I think those are the things that we should watch out for. Before we do that, I would love some input from Naila here, who's joining us as well, um, from a micro perspective. Naila, from, you know, on the economic front, things were not that great before the pandemic began a little over a year ago. Um, small businesses were, were hurt tremendously. Um, and of course, now with these commitments that have been made, particularly on the taxation side, um, things will, uh, and on the electricity side, it is expected that businesses will struggle. So help us understand what it was like uh, on your side as an entrepreneur, as an employer of over 200 people, uh, what it was like to go through the pandemic and even now with the third wave coming in. And what would you like to see as a business owner, the government of Pakistan and its policies uh, to go towards in order to have a recovery that is not only sustainable, but equitable as well? Um, Ozair, thank you for having me. Um, just one clarification, uh, Pie in the Sky actually uh, employs over 400 people. So, you know, so the impact is even, uh, is even greater. But, um, you know, I think the majority, of, of obviously, worldwide, the majority of medium-sized uh, businesses um, were, and in some cases, uh, remain badly affected, you know, by the measures put in place to try and con contain the pandemic. Um, you know, most SMEs in uh, Pakistan uh, work in a very competitive environment and find it difficult, uh, you know, to build up reserves. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to build up uh, reserves uh, while also growing the business at the same time. Uh, so consequently, we, we do rely very heavily on, um, you know, our cash flows to meet um, expenses. So... Um, you know, it, it has been extremely, extremely difficult. It's been extremely um, tough. And, you know, Pine the Sky, as I said, operates primarily in the food retail sector, which worldwide has been one of the hardest hit uh, by the complete shutdown. That has happened, you know, globally and especially also in, in Pakistan in sort of March of last year. Uh, so it's it's been extremely um uh, it's been uh, extremely trying. It's been extremely difficult. Uh, as a business owner, I think uh, it's probably one of the most challenging uh, phases that I think anybody obviously has had to uh, to to go through. Um, you know, the, the government did come up with a few um, sort of schemes. Uh, the state bank did come up with a few schemes initially, uh, whereby they gave um, sort of, um, you know, loans to, you know, uh, sort of help you retain staff on, uh, you know, sort of easy uh, repayment uh, terms and also with uh, sort of um, low interest rates. So I didn't avail that. I preferred not to, uh, but I know of a lot of companies that did, and I know that did help them sort of, um, you know, ride the wave a little bit. So that was very useful. 
the other thing which uh, the government, again, with the uh, sort of state bank did was the, uh, you know, a temporary uh, economic relief financing scheme that they uh, initiated again with easy repayment terms, which I think a lot of uh, has helped uh, people sort of, you know, even despite the pandemic, sort of um, invest back in their businesses because, you know, the interest rates again have been very low. So, uh, you know, I think overall, uh, yeah, it is a third wave. It's going to be tough, uh, you know, but the food um, in, in Pakistan, at least, um, you know, the only sort of one of the main sources of uh, entertainment that people have is, uh, is, is food, you know. So, uh, you know, in that way, I'm sort of relatively lucky also. Uh, you know that I am part of that sector, but it, it's been it's been extremely extremely um, difficult as well. Uh, yes, when you talked about taxation and the sort of um, you know the you know the the rates, your energy rates that have gone up and all that is uh, something that um, is extremely worrying. It's it's been extremely tough. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I, I don't know what to be worried about right now, whether to be worried about sort of just sort of riding the pandemic and seeing it through or what we're going to be hit with uh, at, at, you know, uh, when the government decides to implement whatever, you know, is, is uh, deemed necessary by them. So it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's not been an easy uh, year and I don't foresee it uh, easing up anytime soon, uh, depending on what, uh, you know, policies or what is put in place based on, on, on what the government decides, quite honestly, you know. But I mean, I will say, though, that, you know, uh, uh, obviously, you know, the pandemic was a shock to all businesses. But I think uh, the way, you know, that we have kind of bounced back to a great extent also highlight, highlights the uh, resilience of the uh, uh, of Pakistan's retail sector to a great extent. Uh, you know, it depends on, I suppose, um, which sector we're looking at. But, you know, I think, um, you know, it's sometimes I think Pakistan's economy is quite an anomaly. It's sort of, uh, you know, you see sort of if you go out, you sort of see it's almost as business as usual, even though there is a global pandemic. So, you know, it's sometimes, you know, you really wonder how 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 it how it works. It, it's it's quite it's it's fascinating, it's very fascinating actually, you know. Thank you for that, and I agree with you that it is fascinating, and in, in many ways, um, the Pakistani consumer at least remains uh, able to, at least on the upper middle class level, remains able to spend a lot of money, and we're seeing some of that even reflected in, for example, vehicle sales and and things like that. Um, so I, I would love to dive deeper into you know some of the stuff you mentioned, particularly around not availing the financing schemes by the state bank. But before I do that, I would love to bring in uh, Safia into this conversation as well. And Safia, over the last few weeks now, um, I, I mentioned at the outset, the last few days have been action-packed, but from an international point of view, the last few weeks have been action-packed in terms of this pivot towards new economics that has been communicated by the Pakistani government. Um, the Islamabad security dialogue obviously was sort of the, the roadshow to, to bring that perspective out to the rest of the world. Um, 
We've seen uh, the Pakistanis talk more and more about connectivity, including regional connectivity. Um, and I would love to hear your thoughts on, given that you work with international companies and given that you're plugged into the DC circuit here, how has how has this narrative shift been received? And, and what is it that international companies, and even from your point of view, Pakistan needs to do more of to not only just have this narrative be a narrative, but actually be something tangible that changes the course of the Pakistani economy. Thanks, Azair, and, and thanks, uh, Tamanna and Naila and Khuram. It's a pleasure to participate on this panel with you all. Um, so, Uzair, like you <clears throat> mentioned, I'll start off with just sort of talking a little bit about this, the dynamics of the, the U.S.-Pakistan economic relationship, but also maybe um, the sort of shift towards geoeconomics and maybe away from the geostrategic, geopolitical lens that the U.S.-Pakistan relationship has been in, and then maybe sort of delve into what I call my list of issues that we hear over and over again from U.S. companies and investors, multinational investors that, um, you know, we hear over and over again who either are, are interested in doing business in Pakistan but face hurdles or are actively doing business in Pakistan and, and face hurdles. So, uh, so I'll, I'll share sort of my, like, compilation of uh, the best, a uh, list of the best that with you as well. So I'll start off a bit on the U.S.-Pakistan economic relationship. And, you know, I think there's been ongoing dialogue about strengthening the economic relationship over the years, you know, and I think many of us who watch the government to government relationship can attest that you know it's it's um the same sort of we want to expand trade and we want to do more do more between the US and Pakistan and maybe we've seen a little bit more in the recent months you know there was recently a call between secretary Lincoln and foreign minister Shamimud Qureshi with re which referenced to expanding trade and commercial ties and you know both secretary Blinken and, and president Biden are no strangers to Pakistan but they do see Pakistan from that um, sort of national security, geopolitical, uh, geostrategic lens. So it will be sort of an obstacle for Pakistan to make that shift away. Um, and on the economic side, you know, we can't we can't sort of talk about this without noting that China is the elephant in the room. And U.S. officials have repeatedly spoken about how Pakistan would benefit more by cooperating with the U.S. than depending you know, solely on China. And um, the pitfalls of, of CPAC or the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor projects have been highlighted on a number of these sort of bilateral exchanges by US, U.S. officials. And I think on the U.S. side, there is growing concern about China's influence in the region. So I think that's sort of the broader lens of the of the U.S.-Pakistan relationship and China being a little bit of the spoiler there. Um, but Pakistan has publicly re reiterated its support for CPEC, but it hasn't really declined that, you know, there is this important U.S.-Pakistan economic relationship and that it seeks important, you know, economic ties with U.S. companies. Um, so I think that's there, um, and I think that that should definitely be um, reiterated. But you know, there's still this conversation, which is very much at a higher level of yes, these sectors should be prioritized, and we should begin to identify the areas of of cooperation. And I think you know, having worked in government maybe you know 10, 15 years ago, that conversation is still happening. And sometimes I'm wondering if maybe that conversation is is um, better served for for not in the government to government space but rather from the private sector um, to be pushing for those conversations. Um, so like you mentioned, is there a lot has been in the recent months um, spoken about this sort of um, shift towards geoeconomics and Pakistan's focus um, 
from geopolitics. Um, and, and I think that the real issue there is that Pakistan really has to reach some sort of understanding with Washington on the strategic and security issues. Um, and, and I don't, I really do hope that there's not this conversation taking place that is totally misguided where you've got um, US officials coming in and talking about sort of Afghanistan and the counterterrorism issues um, and Pakistan's legitimate desire to have the economic conversations, but they're going completely sideways uh, and, and across from each other. Um, and I think there, sometimes maybe a clash from Washington's own objectives and, and Islamabad's objectives, and it could be on what this shift looks like. Um, and for that to happen, for Pakistan really to, to talk about geoeconomics and, and, and emphasize economic cooperation, they have to enhance the value, uh, their value as an economic partner, um, which means they have to strengthen their economy. And I'll get to sort of the nuts and bolts of sort of the issues that U.S. investors see. So I do want to highlight just a little bit on, you know, Pakistan is currently the U.S.'s 56th largest goods trading partner um, with 6.6 .6 billion in total two-way uh, trade uh, last year. Um, and I just want to, just as comparison, uh, just for comparison's sake, India is currently the U.S.'s ninth largest trading partner. So when Pakistan talks about, um, you know, why why aren't we given the same level of importance or why is USTR not paying attention to us on trade agreements or trade policies or pacts, um, it actually has to do with the numbers. It has to do with how much there's a flow of goods across borders. It has to do about um, what the trade deficit looks like. And, it, you know, when you compare apples to oranges, it's just, it, it, it's just, it's a different comparison between between the two. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll shift a little bit to some of the issues that we see from, from U.S. investors. Um, and despite sort of a relatively foreign investment regime, and what do I mean when I say a relatively open foreign investment regime? Pakistan's FDI laws in terms of how foreign investors can actually invest in different sectors is relatively open compared to other regions. So in India, there's FDI caps on all kinds of sectors, which is shifting, but Pakistan doesn't have that. But despite that, there's still all kinds of barriers for, for companies um, who are looking to do business um, for in the business that I work with, the U.S. companies, um, what comes up over and over is, and when we present to them, hey, there's this opportunity in Pakistan, which we think you should take a look at, is the risk. And companies don't like taking risks. They want to mitigate risk, um, and they calculate the risk as much as possible. Um, and what, what are these risks that we're talking about? One is Pakistan is still on the FATF gray list. Um, this comes up quite often. Um, and Pakistan was originally placed on the FATF gray list, gray list in 2018 due to failure to comply with requirements such as regulating money laundering and combating the financing of terrorism. The last thing a U.S. company wants is to be on the front page of the Washington Post or the New York Times because they were operating in a country that were, you know, their funds were misappropriated or were were, were, um, were uh, laundered in some way or were you know or uh, you know were financing terrorism in some way and so they're very concerned about the fat of great list so that becomes the immediate red flag um, you know and I know that Pakistan has been taking legislative measures to sort of ensure that they're able to to, to get off the gray list and I think that's all great progress but this continues to come up and industries which rely on online payment systems and online money transfers and e-commerce platforms and um, financial payment platforms are really um, hesitant to invest in Pakistan 
one because of the fatigue grade list. So that's that's sort of one issue that comes up. The second issue that we hear over and over again is the high tariff and tax rates, but at, at the import stage, but also overall inconsistent tax policies at the a provincial level to the federal level. Um, inconsistencies on how taxes and tariffs are collected at this stage of import and then how they're collected later at the at the time of sale and how those taxes and tariffs are difficult to recoup because um, you know a lot of these times um, businesses are unable to recoup those those taxes um, at the point of sale and so they're losing money sometimes 35 to 40 percent on on goods that are imported into Pakistan because of the high tariff rates so that's another that's another um, another big obstacle. The third thing I wanted to mention is the importance of a stronger manufacturing sector. Now, why do I mention this is because for Pakistan to be a part of a diversified supply chain, uh, uh, it really must, the missing piece of the puzzle is that they um, must get more goods out to markets. That's just plain and simple. And when we talk about um, major e-commerce platforms, the Amazons, the Walmart, all of these companies, um, when they think about uh, the role of, you know, how, that Pakistan can play um, and how integral Pakistan can be as a part of their supply chain, um, this came up actually uh, maybe a year or two ago when um, the 301 tariffs were um, impacting U.S. businesses who were bringing in goods from China. And so many U.S. companies were looking at alternative markets in South and Southeast Asia um, to diversify their supply chains. And they were looking at Vietnam, they were looking at Malaysia, they were looking at um, uh, India, they were looking at markets that were, we have free trade agreements, they were looking at markets that were easy to get goods in and out. And Pakistan was not one of those. And I think in order to, to really integrate itself into a growing manufacturing sector in the global value chain, it has to, to to be a part of this manufacturing sector. And it still lags behind, behind way behind um, other countries in the region. So, so that's sort of the, my third point. Um, the fourth point is is uh, the the sort of delays and lengthy dispute resolution processes that we see in Pakistan. So, um, you know, India had the same issue, and they've sort of started these fast track special commercial courts, um, whether it's for. Um, uh, whether it's for bankruptcy and um, and those sorts of resolving a speedy dissolution of companies, or whether it's for um, sort of resolving issues that are um, IP issues or commercial issues, companies don't want to be stuck in court for years and years on end, which oftentimes happens in Pakistan just because of long delays in the judicial system. Um, and then uh, the, the last two issues is the repatriation of funds. Um, we've heard over and over again from U.S. companies that have their money stuck, literally stuck in Pakistan. So they've invested it, um, they've been working on a project, and then they try to pull their money back. And from some, some reason, whether it's an archaic law or they're unable to get the release from the state bank, um, the money ends up being stuck in Pakistan. And this is sort of a big red flag for other companies who, if they are unable to move their assets in and out of the country, really see Pakistan as a, as a red flag for, for investing. And then finally, what I'll say is, 
um, they don't see enough investment and um, incentivization for R&D. And I think in order for Pakistan uh, to, to evolve into a self-reliant economy, the way you've seen, you know, when, when we hear Modi talk about make in India, when we hear um, a self-reliant India, um, you know, and even India doesn't do enough investment in, in research and development, but, but research and development is critical. And this ties into the ecosystem for startups, because essentially the quickest way to develop a product and deliver it to market is through startups. And how do you develop, how do you develop those, that ecosystem for startups? It's by innovative tax policies. It's for incentives for R&D. And I think that's really where we've seen Pakistan lacking both from the private sector in Pakistan and from the government in investing in their own research and development. So I have talked long enough, Uzair, and that is my sort of list of issues. Um, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Safia, and, and thanks for those. And I think that list of issues is great uh, to press, particularly for Rabban, and see what he thinks about the appetite for some of these reforms that are needed. Before I do that, for the audience tuning in, on Twitter, our hashtag is EconOutlookPK. If you want to comment, share, ask questions. If you're on the YouTube page, feel free to chat in your questions um, on the chat box, and we will ask those questions from our panelists here. Um, Naila, I'll switch. I'll bring you in here um, because Safia had a laundry list of sort of the big picture international investor issues that need resolution or how Pakistan can integrate into global value chains. As an entrepreneur, um, what are some of the top of mind issues that you think Pakistan's policymakers should resolve um, in the near term? Uh, particularly, let me phrase it this way. If, if pie in the sky has to go from 400 employees to 1,000 employees in the next two to three years, what are the things you would like the government of Pakistan to do uh, in order to make that possible or in order to accelerate the pace at which you hire another 600, 700 people? And, and the second question I have is, why did you not choose to take in the SPP financing scheme? Were there issues with the process or was it just a business decision? Okay. Um, well, I'll answer the the financing one first. Is that that was a business decision. I chose uh, not to. Uh, this was for uh, you know covering uh, employee uh, salaries for for three months, but I chose not to. Um, you know that way we were very lucky that our employees also sort of. Um, uh, cooperated and we sort of uh, worked out a you know a deferred you know payment uh, scheme for them so you know that worked uh, in our favor um i will though say that i did avail the uh, the other the temporary uh, economic uh, you know uh, financing scheme and i did avail that and i have to say that uh, we were facilitated very easily and uh, very fast it was extremely fast. And I just did that uh, beginning of this year. I didn't do that um, in uh, 2020. Um, you know, coming back to what, uh, as an entrepreneur, what, um, you know, I, I, I think everybody here knows that the, the tax structure in, in Pakistan it, uh, requires a lot of work. Uh, you know, it, um, I'm talking from, you know, a very sort of, small, you know, basic level is that, you know, there is a lot of undocumented uh, economy. There's a great undocumented economy in, uh, in Pakistan. And, 
you know, I, I just feel that till we sort of are all on a, um, you know, a level playing field, it's, it's very difficult for businesses to, to, to progress. Uh, you know, I, I, do, I, I do pay a lot of tax because that's the way I decided to, um, you know, to, to operate. I, I, I felt that it, that was the way to, to operate. Now, I know that others may not be as um, forthcoming with their, with their taxes. And, you know, then sort of, it, it's, 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 it's very difficult. You're, you know, you're not competitive in the market. You're not uh, able to price your product accordingly. You know, so there, there's a lot that goes in. Um, you know, and, you know, anything, you know, are sort of um, are imports. I mean, though, I do try and rely, like, uh, uh, on a lot of local products so that I don't have to face that issue. But, you know, um, our customs duties have just gone through the roof, you know. Uh, things that, uh, you know, were easily available are now not easily available. Stuff gets stuck at the port for a long time. Uh, you know, sometimes even if it's sort of in refrigerated, uh, you know, containers, but, you know, we've had issues with, there, there has been a lot. There has been a lot. And I think, you know, um, the ease of doing business in Pakistan uh, needs to change. Uh, it's not easy. It's not an, uh, you know, uh, it's not a very uh, inviting or very hospitable uh, business environment. Uh, unfortunately, it's uh, it's, a, it's a it's a it's a daily struggle. It's a daily struggle with with you know different layers of different things that come in. You know, um, I, you know. So it's 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 not an easy situation. So you know, with taxation definitely is something that really does need to be regulated. It needs to be. Um, you know, sometimes you feel that you're taxed to the point where, well, it's just not profitable anymore to run a business. Uh, you know, there's certain, um, you know, sales tax and certain duties that, you know, you sort of really hold your head at the end of the day. Sometimes I come home from work and I'm like, you know, why do I do this? You know, because it's just, uh, you know, you, you, there are more obstacles and hindrances in your way than, uh, you know, people sort of clearing the way and saying, okay, you know, you're sort of, uh, you're, you know, uh, an SME or SMEs are, you know, I would like to think the backbone of any uh, economy. And instead of making it easier for a lot of us to, to operate, uh, you know, it's, it, it's very difficult. It's very difficult in, in the current environment. And unfortunately, you know, I, like I said earlier, I, I'm sort of worried about how more, you know, how much tougher it's going to become with, you um, new taxation or sort of, you know, energy rates having to go up or, you know, anything. So, you know, I'm, I'd like to be optimistic, uh, but, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sort of cautiously optimistic, you know, cautiously optimistic. But, uh, you know, I, 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 like I said, I don't know what the government can do to sort of, you know, I, I'm not a, a, an expert on this, but I, you know, I just sort of, when things come through, when things are thrown at me, I'm like, oh my God, now this, you know, now we have to deal with this issue or this taxation or, you know, somebody tells me, oh, wait, you know, we couldn't receive, you know, because you we also actually have a chocolate, uh, a chocolate shop. So we import Belgian chocolates. And so it's like, you know, sometimes you have, you know, and you know, it's a very sensitive um, item. And sometimes, you know, it, it's been stuck at, uh, you know, at the port for, uh, at the airport rather, for, for weeks, because, you know, they, they can't agree on which, 
you know, in those, you know, you've been importing it for years. They can't agree on which uh, customs duty or which which bracket you fall into, and it's like you so few. Each time you do it, you're having to sort of, uh, you know, go through the whole uh, issues all over again. So it's like, you know, we did this last sort of six months ago, and so sort of we're having to redo it again. So it, it's it's difficult. It's, it's you know, it's frustrating at times and difficult, but you know, sort of what can one do? Yeah. No, th thanks for that. And so, Koram, I'll bring you in here because we've heard from both Naila and Safia the the sort of issues both small businesses as well as international investors face. And to Naila's point, SMEs are the backbone of an economy. Let's assume there are a million SMEs in a country like Pakistan. If you remove obstacles in their way to the extent that they can hire even two more people in the next year, that's two million new jobs that are created in the economy. And that impact, no foreign investor, no Amazon, no anybody else can bring that in besides SMEs because they have the scale across the country and it's equitable growth across the length and breadth of the country. Um, but for them, then you have the IMF's commitments and the commitments that on paper are commitments for reform, but in, in reality, they translate into this obsession over the current account deficit or raising the electricity tariff by five rupees at a time or six rupees at a time. Um, from your vantage point and knowing some of the intrigue that's been going on in terms of who will drive the finance ministry, et cetera, and the election mode that is going to, uh, you know, the government is going to go into election mode soon. Um, do you see any any sort of reforms coming on the horizon in terms of improving the ease of doing business in the country and making sure that not only foreign investors, um, but also small businesses like Nylas are able to grow and thrive in the Pakistani economy? You know, they're listening to both Safiya and Naila right now. I'm struck, in fact, by how disparate uh, the challenges to uh, investors in Pakistan really are, those who are already operating in Pakistan, such as Naila, and those who are being invited to come and acquire states, such as the one that Safiya has spoken to. And yet, on the other hand, how utterly rudimentary the state of our economic conversation is in this country. Because as you rightly pointed out, it tends to revolve basically around uh, around uh, uh, a few deficits, a couple of high-frequency indicators like large-scale manufacturing, uh, a, a handful of vested interests, very powerful vested interests tend to dominate uh, the voice uh, with which one can speak. I don't think people such as Naila could speak above the powerful textile and cement um, industries uh, of this country although one wonders how much innovation is going to come from the textile and cement magnates or the auto sector. Um, on the one hand, uh, we hear the government say we want to promote digital Pakistan, and on the other hand, they're banning TikTok, one of the most popular apps uh, among the youth in this country, every other month or so. If it's not the government, it's a court, uh, and now we'll wait to see who it might be next. Uh, on the one hand, they say we want to promote uh, di uh, digital payments and a digital payments ecosystem because without that, you're not really going to move into and have the kind of innovations you need to become a 21st century economy. And on the other hand, we see the FDR one day proudly announcing how they served massive tax notices to all people using one particular digital payment platform, the only one available to uh, freelancers uh, who operate in the tech sector. Uh, over here. Not that those people are necessarily tax cheats or something, and not that there's a massive uh, treasure trove of revenue to be uh, unearthed by the SDR's own accounts. It was only a handful of billion rupees. 
which isn't going to be a drop in the ocean given the, the scale of the fiscal deficit part that I'm heading towards. Uh, but nevertheless, the pride and joy with which that was announced. Um, and then the numerous other obstacles. So you just talk to somebody working in the high-tech sector and uh, listen to them explain all the problems they face in a simple act of receiving a payment from their client abroad. Uh, and uh, the obstacles are not only policy uh, level or regulatory level from the state bank or the government, but at the banking level itself. It seems, at least my impression is, the banks are particularly keen to put a lot of their capital behind expanding their business in this area, regardless of how they may talk. They would prefer to continue just lending uh, to government uh, at, uh, at, 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 you know, borrow, uh, taking funds at 5% from the borrower and talking about returns on savings accounts, not even current, uh, and uh, lending on to government at 7, 8, 9% instead. And, uh, and, and just leave it at that. This level of risk-averse behavior, which is so deeply rooted among the banks as well, so it's pervasive, you know, the rudimentary nature of Pakistan's economic conversation, the kind of economic uh, directions that emerge from within this conversation don't rare or rarely ever go much beyond um, the demands of particular vested interests, uh, which basically revolve around gas price subsidies, power subsidies, and, uh, uh, and another few taxes here and there, and a few customs duties here and there. Incidentally, another good example of uh, this, the rudimentary nature of this conversation is the recent attempt to try and bring about a shift to geoeconomics by moving two proposals, one for sugar and one for cotton imports from, uh, from India. And we saw what happened. We all saw what happened with that. Uh, it passed one committee of the cabinet, it reached the full cabinet, and over there it was suddenly shot down, saying that no, there are foreign policy implications involved in this. Uh, and the language that was used, if you look at the public language there, they said, we are not ready for trade normalization with India. And one feels like using words of one syllable to explain to these people that two commodity-specific summaries do not amount to trade normalization. These are commodity-specific. They are only opening sugar and cotton imports uh, into India, allowing their transfer across Wara border. How is that trade normalization, for God's sake? But uh, you can see the level of the, the hold, or the, 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 the level to which geopolitics has a hold uh, over, the, over Pakistan's economic conversation right here, uh, and in, in what happened over there. But across the board, um, when I talk to trade industry associations, even when you talk to government, the, the kind of representations that they get, I don't think the voice of people such as Naila and other investors in high tech, uh, in the high tech side, or those who are actually innovating, trying to move out of the traditional cement, auto, textile sector industries, I don't think their voice even reaches uh, the policymakers. Uh, you know, I, I don't see much of uh, an organized voice, first of all, coming from them and wherever there is. Uh, it doesn't get much play or much traction uh, up at the top. But the conversation remains wedded to very, very old-fashioned brick-and-mortar issues. So I think something's got to change over there. And I don't think the IMF is the, the right player to look to to try and change this conversation. It has to come from within. And um, <clears throat> I suppose to some extent uh, these uh, people who are working in innovative uh, industries, whether in retail or in services, uh, need to organize perhaps a little bit better, uh, network with each other a little bit better, figure out what are the common problems that they are all facing, where the government can play a role to help alleviate those issues. 
and then figure out how to advance those um, that voice so it can reach the, 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 the ears of policymakers, engage perhaps a little bit more with the media. But uh, all of that by itself, again, will not will bring about the kind of change that uh, you sort of implicitly pointing towards, Fuzair, if I understand you correctly. Uh, that change is more organic. It, it has to be, uh, there has to be a, a high level realization, I think, in this country that uh, business as usual isn't working. And uh, uh, until more is done to actually promote innovation, uh, to unlock the potential of the youth uh, in this country, to value and understand the, the new arenas that are opening up with the, with, with the high-tech uh, economy coming in. Uh, bringing in Tanya Edrus was, a, was, I thought, a great move in that direction. Uh, uh, and the manner in which she led, left was a lousy move away from that direction. Uh, you know, we need more people like like her, uh, I think, coming into Pakistan and contributing to not just the, the policy effort, but also the, the, the conversation, the policy and economic conversation in this country. Until that happens, you know, uh, I think it will remain business as usual. It's, uh, it's very deeply rooted otherwise. So there. Thanks for that, Furam. And, and to the audience that is tuning in, you can send in your questions both on the YouTube page now as well as on the USIP page in the chat box. So keep those questions coming. Safiya, we actually have a question from the audience that I would love your thoughts on. And the question is, what is the future of economic relations with Afghanistan following the U.S. withdrawal, considering especially that India is looking to also increase its investment and maintain its influence in, in the country as well? Yeah, I think um, I think that's a tough one. <laughs> I think that's a tough one, was there, given that um, you know, having traveled to Afghanistan and sort of in you know during my time in government, the conversation was so security focused that I think you know there's been little to no conversation about economic development in Afghanistan. And I think that's a longer term conversation for the country. Uh, you know, I think it's going to have to be a regional conversation about how, you know, the, the neighborhood comes together in support of Afghanistan's, you know, economic development. How do they develop their own sort of indigenous economic platforms, their own pay payment platforms, their own banking system, their own infrastructure. And I think all of that, um, is going to be is going to be sort of a, a tough call, and I think it's going to be a, a sort of territorial one, given the sort of regional interests from India um, and others in Afghanistan. And so, so I think um, you know, I think that's sort of much more further on the minds of, of at least U.S. government officials at this point than I think, um, as it should be, it, it should definitely be um, sort of a, a huge part of the conversation. But unfortunately, I don't think it is. I think. You know, just yesterday, Jen Psaki um, mentioned that President Biden has still not made any decision and wants to take his time on, um, you know, the troop policy and the, the decision on um, on the Taliban talks. And so I, I think I think that is very much on the forefront of, of U.S. policymakers' minds. And, you know, unfortunately, that still is very much the forefront of the conversation of the U.S.-Pakistan relationship. And, um, you know, and and so I think it will be for the upcoming months and, and, and for the near future. So the economic one is a much tougher conversation um, in Afghanistan, particularly for the private sector as well. So, um, but it's definitely one that needs to be had, is there. Thanks for that. And, and 
Khurab, uh, there's a question from Ambassador Eric Olson here um, that would love your thoughts. And Safia, if you want to chime in, let me know as well on this one, because it is a big issue. It's been a big issue for a long period of time, which is the Ricordic arbitration case. It's been going on for a long time. It has had an impact. And, and the question essentially is, in terms of investor confidence, how much of an impact or does Rico Dick continue to have in terms of, you know, creating this aura that Pakistan is not a investor friendly destination and that you should shy away from it because of the fact that things, agreements like Rico Dick can go into arbitration for years and nothing can come out of it uh, for a long, long period of time. So Khuram, what are your thoughts on that? Um, well, it's not, not just uh, Rico Dick, although that's probably one of the biggest examples uh, of the kind of policy uncertainty, the uncertainty that uh, investors face coming into Pakistan. But uh, this overall tendency to seek to renew or, or review agreements after having entered into them, whenever government changes uh, or even court intervention, um, if investors cannot get a secure 20, 25 year horizon uh, of uh, some level of policy certainty, uh, or, you know, whatever the, the, the gestation fees or whatever the, the horizon of the particular project is, if uh, you're putting down a billion dollars or whatever, a very large amount of money, and you aim to recover that money over two, two and a half decades, you need some kind of certainty to know that, that, uh, that the calculations under which I'm uh, putting this money down will hold five years, ten years down the road, and a new tax will not suddenly come in. Now, the number of time or, you know, some other reversal will not take place. So other than Vico Dick, uh, what happened with the rental power projects, for example, uh, a case that was launched back in 2011, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, was, and all the uh, people accused in it were, exo were uh, exonerated only in July 2020. And even then, NAB went, took the matter into a peak. So it's still continuing, uh, right, from 2011 even though Pakistan has lost that case in international arbitration, had to approach the government of Turkey at a foreign policy level, at the head of state level, uh, and, and ask the, the prime minister of Turkey to um, uh, do something to get that liability off them. They are continuing to appeal the, the matter over here. Uh, but uh, the, the, there are so many other examples. Uh, the recent attempt to try and renegotiate the tariffs with the independent power, uh, with the independent power producers. Uh, you can rest assured every future investor is looking at these and saying, well, you know, if uh, these, uh, uh, if whatever agreement we come into uh, under today is going to be reversed tomorrow, I'll give you another example from the special economic zones where people were told that your incomes will be tax-free up until a certain point in time. I forget the time horizon, but it was quite long, over uh, the uh, decade or two decades. Uh, your incomes will be tax-free. Um, and then one day they decided to impose a turnover tax. This is after the, the people had set up their plant, made the investment and started running. And they imposed a turnover tax. And these guys went to the government and said, okay, well, you know, as per your own policy, it says it's tax exempt. And the government said, well, that's income tax, right? This is turnover tax. These are two different things. It doesn't say anything about turnover tax. That clearly, manifestly, sounds like an act of bad faith. And um, uh, so this does dent investor sentiment. Foreign investors, particularly so, uh, but uh, also domestic investors. And it definitely makes uh, uh, people averse to acquiring long-term stakes, putting down large amounts of uh, capital. And uh, whenever they do, uh, it uh, encourages them to basically get their returns as fast as possible before the wind changes direction. And I've had 
people tell me this directly they said ke for in this country you know you putting down some money get your money get your returns and your money back within 2 years 3 years because you don't know what's going to happen faster so it this policy uncertainty in fact promotes rent seeking behavior it promotes uh, the kind of behavior that uh, uh, is very inhibitive of uh, uh, you know growth and innovation for example um, um, over invoicing of uh, uh, capital equipment that you import so if you've taken a large loan uh, to set up a large plant let's say a massive billion dollar fertilizer plant you will have an inv- an, an incentive to quickly recover that billion dollars or whatever it is you put down before the government changes its mind on the allocations of gas or before the government changes its mind on tax issues or uh, pricing of fertilizer or subsidies or, or or any of the other things that are critical components of your cost center so it, it you know it, it not only dense investor sentiment it actually promotes uh, rent seeking behavior and uh, it increases people's reliance on uh, malignant uh, kinds of uh, investment behavior uh, to seek outlandish returns in the short term while the sun shines um it's it, it's a very damaging thing this uh, re- these repeated policy reverses thank you um so we we've had you know a good sort of discussion on the issues that are there the economy related to rent seeking related to policy volatility international investors having concerns around rico day naila you you also said that you know at, on certain days you think about the fact that you know it gives you a headache all these issues with the fbr and and electricity tariffs and customs issues etc then why are you doing this but you are still doing this you're a successful entrepreneur so i would love to hear your thoughts on what is it that keeps you going in the pakistani market given the obstacles that are in the way and why is it that you're determined to continue growing and what is it about the anomaly of the pakistani market in a good way that allows an entrepreneur like yourself and others like yourself uh to prosper and thrive and continue to push the economy forward um you know at the end of the day um you know for me pakistan is home uh you know this is where i was born this is where you know i live so you know i mean you know i'm i'm, I'm sort of you know i i can't see myself living anywhere else so you know if i want to sort of uh, you know continue with my business and this is it and and quite on i'm very patriotic i am very very patriotic uh, you know um so i really want to you know i think what gives an entrepreneur any satisfaction is um sort of um, you know being able to employ people to make a change in their lives to help them sort of uh, better themselves to better their families lives um uh, i think that sort of really you know is what drives drives me at least as as an entrepreneur um obviously i sort of have a real passion for taking the business forward uh because i i do feel that there is a lot of potential as well like you said you know that that anomaly is it's it's a good anomaly because uh you know uh, even though like i said we're in a global pandemic you still go out in the market so you still go somewhere you know you do see people still you know uh, going about their daily lives i mean you know it is an economy that you know a lot of people unfortunately are are daily wages 
So, you know, you, you sort of need that, that economy to, to, you know, uh, you need businesses to be open. You need, uh, because that's how, how uh, you know, uh, you know, our population survives. And uh, not that we have daily wages, but, you know, I'm just saying that sort of, I think that's that, um, you know, when you see people around you who, who are struggling to survive, uh, you know, who are having a hard time, then, you know, I think it just pushes you even more. I, I you know, like you said, I would love to be able to, uh, you know, scale up and, uh, you know, employ, you know, 600 people within the next year, two years or whatever it is. And quite honestly, that's one of the reasons why we did take one of the financing schemes that the State Bank offered is, uh, you know, we are investing in sort of uh, new equipment, so we can enhance our, our production capacity, you know, open more outlets, uh, maybe, you know, move to new, um, uh, you know, across, across Pakistan. So, you know, sort of create more jobs, uh, you know, help, help the economy grow that way. I mean, um, you know, the issues that, that the, the business, uh, you know, the small sort of business community faces, they're not going to go away. I mean, I don't see them going away anytime soon. So, you know, either I shut shop, which I'm not prepared to do, or then I just sort of, you know, sort of battle my way through and just sort of make it work. Uh, you know, you just sort of got to have that attitude of like a, you know, a sort of that I'm not going to let it stop me. And you're going to sort of, no matter what, you're going to, you know, bulldoze your way through and, uh, you know, uh, create that, create that environment where, you know, you can sort of employ more people, give more employment, um, you know, hopefully, you know, uh, you know, just create more jobs, create more jobs, you know, that, that's, that's what it boils down to really. Really. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and I think it is at the end of the day, that's what it should be, right? The conversation should not be about vested interests or subsidies here and there, but it should be, can you create jobs and can you create formal well-paying jobs that can help people improve their lives? And if the answer to that is yes, then the government and the policy environment should shift to create that opportunity. And I think um, that's what's been lacking in the economic discourse, as Khuram rightly pointed out, within the country for a long, long period of time. We have another question here here um, uh, specifically, and, you know, maybe I I'll start, I'll ask this question from Safiya, and then Khuram would love your thoughts on this as well, because um, Khuram, you commented on it just a bit as well, um, is that do you see um, the recent ceasefire between India and Pakistan in any way, shape, or form in the near to medium term benefiting Pakistan's economy. Um, and I say that very cautiously, uh, Safi, I know you're smiling because, you know, I was joking with someone on Twitter the other day that if, if someone were to write a book about India-Pakistan relations, they could probably call the book, This Time is Different, A History of Indo-Pak Relations, because we always make that point that this time hopefully is different. So, Safiya, do you think this time is different? You know, I, I think I'm cautiously optimistic as, um, you know, I think there this time the thaw was much longer, um, you know, at least in my sort of 10, 15 years of watching India-Pakistan relations, um, you know, the thaw felt like it, it, you know, the sort of freezing of the relationship felt really frozen this time. Um, you know, the fact that, you um, 
the dynamics of the of the sort of leadership in both India and Pakistan were such, and um, it it really felt like um, things were going south. And for the conversation to have taken this upturn recently with the ceasefire and then the talks on the Indus, uh, the the water talks on the Indus Valley, um, the river uh, conversation, I think that plus this conversation on resuming sort of um, bilateral economic, you know, like Clara mentioned on on the the sugar and the the cotton um, trade between the two, I think is promising. You know, I think we should be cautiously optimistic. I think there's obvi obviously always a spoiler to look out for anytime there's there's progress in the India-Pakistan relationship. It's always two steps forward, one step back. Um, but I do think that um, unlocking that bilateral trade between India and Pakistan could be a huge, huge factor for Pakistan's economic progress. Um, and I think part of that is is really sort of um, putting the the um, geopolitics aside and looking at what's what's at play and what's in benefit of Pakistan's economic um, what you know opportunities, specifically for young people, specifically when it comes to the service sector, IT sector, um, and how India has really revolutionized that that sector um, in India and creating jobs. And I think Pakistan can ab absolutely do the same. Um, and I think if there's more dialogue between the two. Um, on the economic side, it's really about unlocking opportunities for the region. And you know, you asked me earlier about Afghanistan. I think this is a this could be a huge factor in that as well. And so, I um, you know I, I, I don't want to say this is the one because um, I, I don't know, um, but I I am hopeful that um, regional players can also be be helpful in pushing the conversation forward. I do think that um, the regional economic conversation should be a part. Of, of the conversation between the two. Um, usually it does start with like the water talks and the, and the sort of um, territorial issues and, and let's put those issues aside and let's actually start on the economic piece. And I think um, that actually might be a good starting point uh, for the two. I, I think we're also long overdue for a, a, a cricket series as well. So I'll add that to the yeah, mix. Um, and, <laughs> and, and I think you're, you're absolutely right, right? In terms of, you know, the, the normalization of trade, um, cotton and sugar is not trade normalization. Trade normalization is when, for example, some of my friends in India stop complaining about the fact that they cannot find Shan Masala anymore in the markets there uh, because it has to be routed through Dubai or some other channel and then ends up in India and it's too expensive by that time. So that's a an opportunity lost um, not only for Pakistani businesses, but again, to Naila's point in terms of Pakistani jobs. Um, and if you can have a, a normalized trade relationship, then jobs will be created on either side of the border. Um, Safiya, uh, you had mentioned China and China is the elephant in the room. And Param, I'll ask you this question because you've covered CPEC extensively, um, going all the way back a few years to, I recall the exclusive report Don had um, around the sort of, the, uh, of what comes after the early harvest projects. And part of that uh, argument was that, you know, the Chinese will play an increasingly large role in Pakistan's economy, its agriculture, its maybe its technology sector. How has, um, all that panned out over the last few years from your point of view um, and particularly also would love your thoughts on do you see um, this sort of continued closeness if CPEC goes into you know a, a next phase where this relationship deepens on the economic front does that have an impact then on the potential of a geoeconomic a deeper geoeconomic relationship between Pakistan and the United States 
Okay, well, those are two very, very heavy questions. Uh, let me see if I can answer them in one go. Um, well, I think CPEC has definitely slowed down, but it is not dead, as, uh, um, you know, as some people have been saying. Uh, it has slowed down for two reasons. One is that it was supposed to slow down anyway. The early harvest programs were that. They were the early harvest part of CPEC. The real week actually came after. The early part of CPEC, the early harvest projects were the, the precursor, you could say. Um, but, uh, and once those were done, then those were short gestation, 18-month uh, projects to be set up in 18 months or, uh, or uh, you know, two years, uh, except for some of the hydroelectric projects, which will take a bit longer. Uh, but the vast majority of CPEC is not envisioned to be a project-based cooperation between India, between Pakistan and China. It's actually uh, a, a sort of a closer integration of the value chains uh, between these two countries, particularly between Xinjiang province of China and Pakistan. Um, so that is continuing. That's the pace. The special economic zones um, work has slowed down on those uh, to some extent uh, because you know, SEVs are more complicated to set up. Investment is more difficult to incentivize and bring into the country than uh, specific projects, especially if those projects happen to be uh, implemented by state-owned enterprises that are operating under state uh, directives. Uh, but now that they are moving towards bringing in private entities from China into SEVs and into joint ventures in Pakistan, it's good. that was expected that there will be some amount of a slowdown. Uh, but they are beginning to now trickle in. Uh, the, uh, the the investments and um, uh, I think it's entirely possible that in the years to come there can be uh, an uptick. In the years meaning between now and the year 2023, there can be a sharp up, a sharper uptick and a breakthrough can uh, still um, happen uh, to, to to promote the, the influx of these investments. So I wouldn't rule CPEC out just yet. Uh, but to your larger question about uh, its geoeconomics in the United States, I looked a few years ago, the Pakistanis used to try and tell the Americans with some amount of uh, uh, relish almost that uh, we don't need you anymore. We have China. And uh, look at all that the Chinese are doing for us. I remember one event here in Karachi where then Deputy Chairman Planning Commission, Ethan Iqbal, stood before and assembled uh, gathering of uh, diplomats and uh, and told them that the Chinese did for us what you should have done, pointing to the Americans, what you should have done uh, after the Afghan war ended in the 1980s. Uh, you owed us a reconstruction package for the support that we had provided in helping bring down the USSR uh, at that time, but instead you abandoned us and left. Um, and today the Chinese are doing for us what you owed us back then. And he was likening it to the Marshall Plan in a sense. Um, but today, uh, I note that the Pakistanis are trying to seek to climb down from that line, uh, diplomatically. They're trying to say, well, we don't, want, we, we don't want to go too far into China's orbit. We're not getting as, as much out of China as we thought we would be getting. Um, and I think there is an awakening taking place within the highest levels of, uh, of Pakistan's uh, foreign policy establishment, especially. Uh, and by this awakening, I don't mean something that has happened in the last week, but over the, uh, perhaps the last couple of years. Uh, that uh, no matter how much China is committed to you, uh, the, the, the Pakistan still ends up leading the United States. Uh, perhaps the principal reason for this 
is that uh, this goes back to the rudimentary nature of Pakistan's economic conversation that we were talking about earlier. Perhaps one of the reasons for this is that the only thing Pakistan is ever really looking for from any big partner is bailouts, cash bailouts, to uh, underwrite the, uh, the country's chronic economic dysfunctions. Uh, and uh, they found that the Chinese have a very limited appetite for that sort of thing. Uh, they, they don't really do chronic, they don't really do bailouts, let alone bailouts of uh, chronic dysfunction. Uh, where the party is going to keep coming back every other year, asking for another couple of billion dollars. So, uh, and, and and then I think we're realizing that the uh, architecture of uh, international cooperation continues to be dominated by the United States. Uh, whether you're going to the IMF or FATF, um, China is maybe uh, an emerging power, especially in the region. Its power and, and its uh, presence is uh, it's very very palpable. Uh, but I think at the highest levels, um, they're now realizing that uh, they do continue to need uh, good relations with the United States. And they're trying to find a way back into uh, 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 a way back to that place that they used to be before the uh, relationship began to fray. So, well, that's more or less it uh, on that. Unless you have any specific follow-ups. No, I think I think you you covered it well, and um, I would love Safia's thoughts on this as well because I I believe that you know that the the need for the United States is is more than just the dollars. There are deep cultural diaspora, um, technological connections that Pakistan and its economy can take advantage of, and I think due to the to the mistake of Pakistan's own policymakers in Islamabad, they've routinely underestimated the value and potential of these linkages and always look to Washington for some sort of short-term financial support as they are now looking to the Chinese. And you rightly said the Chinese are not in that type let of me, game. Yeah. Let me just quickly clarify. I didn't mean to say that this is a good thing, that the Pakistanis only ever bring, the only ask they ever bring to the table yep. is cash assistance to underwrite their chronic economic dysfunction. I meant to say this more as a statement of fact, that like, this yep. is sadly, uh, the the reality. This is this is how it ends up happening. Uh, there there are uh, dozens of other things that they could be asking uh, for at that table, but for somehow, uh, from what I've seen, uh, the, the the cash assistance is pretty much the only thing that uh, it's the only ask that is ever brought to the table in uh, yeah. with big powers. Uh, so the, I just wanted to emphasize, not not trying to say that that's a good thing. And yes, you're absolutely right that uh, the number of students who have studied in the United States, the diaspora that works in the United States, the United States as a, as a source of remittances for Pakistan, uh, and then market access for uh, Pakistani goods in the United States and services and whatnot. There's a huge spectrum of uh, possibilities that actually open over there. Yeah, and and uh, even from the technology sector and the linkages with Silicon Valley, there are extremely successful, qualified Pakistanis who have made it in Silicon Valley and beyond, and who would like to, you know, contribute to the Pakistani startup ecosystem, for example. And that is a wonderful, uh, you know, connection that should be leveraged, and that has a lot of transformative, could have a lot of transformative, and is already having transformative impact on Pakistan's economy. Um, Safia, do you would you agree that that's been 
sort of the shortcoming of the or, or a lack of imagination on the Pakistani side as well is like looking beyond Washington and looking at the rest of the United States and saying, look, we actually have a really successful diaspora that should be investing in the country and not just in the next Beria town plot or the next real estate deal or the next Russian digital account uh, scheme that has been launched, but actually put stakes in the ground with capital investments that, you know, employ people and, and move the economy forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think those linkages are people to people. I think they're business to business. In Silicon Valley, you'll run across, you know, so many people who are of Pakistani American origin who feel like they want to give back to Pakistan and the way that they want to do that is by, uh, uh, you know, empowering Pakistani people, by empowering the private sector. And there is a growing startup community in Pakistan. There is, an, you know, this drive of desire of young people to see, they see innovation happening and they want to be a part of it. Um, they need capital. They need the venture funds. They need support. And I think that's the sort of linkages that need to happen. Um, and, and, you know, unfortunately, it's difficult. It's difficult for those to happen organically. And that's how the governments can provide that convening power and pull people together to have those conversations. You know, I think that's a huge part of this is that so often there was this Kerry Lugler uh, Berman pipeline of billions of dollars of assistance that was coming over years and years, right? And so I think there was this, the conversation was so focused on the assistance that the U.S. was providing to the, the infrastructure projects, to the civil society projects, to the democracy, for all of these sort of great projects that the U.S. government was funding through Kerry Lula Berman funding. And now that the pipeline has stopped, the conversation has sort of dwindled. And the conversation shouldn't just be government to government or from, you know, the finance cooperation of the U.S. from to, to, the, U, to the Pakistani government's uh, finance cooperation. It shouldn't just be between U.S. aid and, you know, the equivalent in Pakistan. And I really think that that has been the missing link between the two um, governments is that they failed to bring in the, the, the thriving diaspora. They failed to link up the, the venture community, the startup community. Um, and that's really sort of the, the driver behind R&D that's employing young people, that's being bringing in innovation, bringing in new ideas. And I think that's sort of relying on the government to do that for you is just not going to happen. And I think, you know, and, and I think they, the government could be uh, proactive, uh, you know, proactively providing a platform for this, which would be fantastic. But I do think that that's sort of a missing link between the two sides that that has been missing for some time. And, you know, the private sector can play a huge role in this. Um, but unfortunately, the conversation has, as Quirin rightly mentioned, has shifted from, okay, so we've gotten assistance from the U.S. Now that's dwindled. Then we'll get assistance from the Chinese. Then that's dwindled. You know, the UAE has dwindled. So, like, it, that mindset has to change. And I think the mindset has to really turn into how are we driving innovation? How are we being creative? How are we bringing in this? These, how are we facilitating these conversations? And, you know, one of the things that I really commend um, the Indian government for is, and I could do this comparison a lot, because I help in U.S. companies both in India and in Pakistan, is, is you know, when the Modi government came in, is he hired, and, and Cora mentioned Tanya Idrus, which is what really brought this idea in my mind, is he hired a bunch of 20-something, 30-something diaspora 
Indian Americans to come to India and serve in his government in positions to revolutionize and change policies, change change the way we do things because what we're the way we're doing things is not working, right? And they were McKinsey types and they were consulting types and they were, you know, they were like the 20, 30 something Yale, Stanford, MIT graduates who wanted to come back and change something in, you know, their parents' home country. And I think that that same mentality is very prevalent in and young people uh, of Pakistani American origin today who, who want to sort of figure out how do we do this and how do we change processes and policies, but is there really a space for them now in this government? I think that's that's part of the question, there. Yeah, and, and this has been, yes, Karun. Just very quickly, I've given examples from India tends to trigger the wrong reflexes over here. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's carefully... It's a, it's a carefully curated conversation when uh, one tries to uh, promote uh, innovation and examples on uh, on uh, innovation over here. Uh, but, uh, uh, but but it's, it's absolutely true that, uh, the, that that innovation is the way out for Pakistan. Um, and yet, at the highest levels of uh, uh, of, of policy making, uh, we see a doubling down on the old priorities, which is finding the resources with which to underwrite your chronic dysfunction, to ma manage and muddle through those chronic dysfunctions rather than reform them out of your economy, uh, and uh, uh, to continuously uh, keep the shadow of geopolitics hanging over geoeconomics instead, regardless of, uh, of rhetoric. Sorry. No, Karam, I think you summed it up really well, and I would just say that you know, even mentioning Bangladesh these days tends to trigger Pakistani. So it's very hard then to look around the neighborhood and say, what lessons can Pakistan learn? Because apparently everything seems to trigger Pakistani policymakers, in particular, when you compare or draw comparisons between India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. But yes, it is a conversation that needs to China be had doesn't. in a may China doesn't. China yes. Doesn't. China is a good example to give, and then it's a matter of what kind yeah. of But yes, and, and in the Chinese example, then they also conveniently forget that the road to Chinese reforms was ran through the Cultural Revolution, which again, as you mentioned, would require not to double down on the status quo itself. And that's a whole different conversation. But this has been a fantastic discussion. I thank the three of you for taking out the time for joining us um, and sharing your insights and perspectives. And I think we can all agree on the fact that the policy conversation and the policy environment needs to shift towards removing obstacles, um, creating more pie in the skies and allowing international investors, particularly the diaspora, to have long-term stakes on the ground in Pakistan. And that is the path forward for innovation, for employment and for sustainable growth. And that the mindset needs to shift. Um, towards a mindset of inclusion, towards a mindset of creating opportunity and not just using crises to ask countries like China, like the United States on, and others uh, for bailouts and for funds. And I think um, the geoeconomics pivot is an opening to push that conversation. We don't know how far that door will open, but I think we can all keep trying and moving forward. And as Naila said, you know, even when it drives us nuts, um, we can continue to push forward and see where we go. So thank, thanks to all of you for taking out the time and for all of you tuning in. Thank you for joining us. Um, please follow USIP on Twitter, on the YouTube page, and other uh, social media channels to stay aware of all the events that we host and all the reports and publish documents that we put out there. And again, have a good rest of the day.
Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.